Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the life and the breath you've given us um, with the joy that we have in your salvation. Lord, I thank you for the gift um, of Jesus, Lord, that you save us, you make us new. Father, you do um, what only you can do, God. I thank you for being um, one we could look to in every circumstance, in every valley. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength uh, just to praise you and just to glorify you, God, with our lives. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for all that you are, and I pray for this morning. I pray that our hearts would be ready um, to hear your word and to be strengthened by it and to be changed by it. Making us, Lord, um, just a new creation, continue to work in us and sanctify us, making us new. We love you. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus sat down with his disciples, and they took the Passover meal together. And as we saw over the past two weeks, it was a very eventful meal, but one that came to a close. And once that meal ended, Jesus and his disciples all stood up, and they left that upper room, And they began to walk in the steps that led to events that were planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus left with his disciples to go and to pray. And as he did, Judas, one of the twelve, went away to go and to seal the deal that he had made with the religious leaders to turn Jesus over for a small amount of money. And so as Jesus is praying, Judas leads these religious leaders and soldiers to find Jesus in the dark of the night and to betray him with a kiss so that the crowds wouldn't be angered and so that the enemies of Christ could take him into custody without anyone knowing. And then begins a series of events that are troubling and disturbing as Jesus is put in front of leaders, in front of governors, and in front of kings, and put on mock trials, and all sorts of false accusations are brought against him. And as he does, as he's paraded in front of these worldly authorities, his disciples have scattered, and one of them is denying ever knowing him. Jesus is mocked. He's humiliated, he's beaten, and then ultimately he's turned over to be crucified, to be killed for crimes that he didn't commit. And through it all, Jesus never wavered. He stood boldly in the face of governors and kings. He dealt with the oppression and the violence and the humiliation. He took each step as part of the plan. And all along the way, he began to make it incredibly clear who he really was. As he stands before Pilate and announces that he is indeed a king and his kingdom is not of this world. And then finally, he finds himself in the exact place that he had been on mission to since before the foundation of the world, since before the fall in the garden, since before the rise and fall of Israel, since long before any of this had ever taken place, Jesus was on a mission to come to this exact moment, this exact place in time and space, and to do what he always knew he had to do to bring salvation into the world. And in this scene that we're going to look at, From Luke chapter 23, 
We're going to be able to recognize the beauty of the kingdom through the death of its king. And we're going to learn as Jesus goes to the cross even more about the meaning of the kingdom of God and how it changes those who step into it. And so this morning, as we look through this passage, let's look with wonder and amazement as we see Jesus use every last moment and every last word to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God had come into the world. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, reading verse 26 through 49. And this is the word of God. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him his cross to carry behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that was called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said these, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you so much for this incredible display of love and affection that you offered for us through Christ. 
But God, we also thank you for the words of Jesus as he makes his way to that last breath. We thank you for the fact that he still chose to teach us about the kingdom of God and to help us understand exactly what he came to do. So, Father, as we look at these words of Christ, help them to pierce down to the depths of our hearts, to reveal to us the beauty and the secret of the kingdom of God, and help them to inspire us and urge us on to live as kingdom people until the day that we get to rest in the presence of Christ forever. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I love symmetry. There's just something very nice and very pleasing about things that are symmetrical when there's balance, if there's pictures on the wall and the wall is nice and evened out, or if you have something that starts one way and then it also ends that way. It just gives a nice feeling of completion, a feeling of intentional nature, and it just looks like it was planned that way. Because really, more often than not, in most cases, if something is symmetrical, if something has that kind of balance, it is almost always because it was designed to be that way. And it gives us this understanding of purpose and intention. When Jesus started his ministry, he began with one simple message. He went from town to town and place to place, and he was proclaiming to everyone who would listen, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God has come. He was making this announcement that he had brought with him the kingdom of God that had been longed for for generation after generation after generation. And now as Jesus marches to the place where he will die, As Simon carries the weight of the cross, Jesus is carrying the sin of the world on his back. And as that's taking place, Jesus continues to preach the very same message. In verse 26, we see Jesus marching towards the place where he was going to die. In verse 27, it says, There followed him this great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting. And he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the blessed that never nursed. And he'll say, Call to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And as Jesus is saying all of this, he is again making this declaration that the kingdom of God is coming into the world. And just like he did a week earlier as he was talking about the destruction of the temple and the old system falling away as the new covenant comes in, Jesus is continuing to proclaim that same message to repent for the kingdom of God. God is here. And if we put ourselves in the mind of the people who were watching, perhaps this could have looked like the last desperate cry of a man defeated. That maybe because Jesus is on his way to his death, that he's just lashing out and saying whatever he can. But in hindsight, As people who get to view this story in light of the resurrection and in light of all that took place in the weeks and months and years to follow the resurrection of Jesus, we know that Jesus was very clearly articulating that everything that I've been preaching about, everything that I've taught you to expect is coming to pass right before you at this moment. And he does it in the most Jesus way possible. We see these people following him. 
And sometimes it's easy to paint this really contrasting picture, and I'm pretty sure I've done it before too. That on Palm Sunday you have the crowds that were crying out as Jesus walked in to the inner place saying, Hosanna, God save us, laying down their garments in the palm branches. It's easy to then say and lump all these people into the group that was crying out, crucify him. But it's very clear that there were still people, because the religious leaders were afraid to arrest Jesus in the public, and because now we see these women following after Jesus, mourning and weeping for him, that there were still this great multitude of people that were touched and affected by the ministry and the teaching and the personal care of Christ. And they're following this man that they had invested everything in and they found their hope in and they are broken and mourning for them. And he looks at the women and he says, don't weep for me. Don't mourn for me. And Luke does this all through his gospel. He presents this amazing picture of Jesus as the suffering servant king who meets people where they are, the broken, the outcast, and the oppressed, the people who were on the fringes of society, the people that had no power or weight of their own. Jesus meets them where they are, and not only does he meet them there, not only does he treat them like equals, not only does he recline at their tables, but he deals with them gently, and he deeply is concerned with them. He's concerned with their needs and their brokenness and their sorrow. And to the very end, Jesus was still loving, still preaching, and still serving. And we see a window into the radical nature of the kingdom of God in this scene. But we've seen it all through Jesus' ministry. As we see Jesus, as he goes teaching and healing and interacting, he's surrounded by women. Which may not seem like a big deal to us now, but in the first century it was. Because Jesus had an incredible way to minister to and involve these women in his ministry. And in the first century, women were not of a very high estate. They weren't thought of very highly in society. And so when Jesus is meeting with these women and incorporating them into his ministry, it shows us that something is different about the kingdom of God. And that no matter where anyone is coming from, Jesus is bringing them in and loving them and caring for them. And so it's very fitting that this man who spoke with the woman at the well, who was widely known in all of her adultery, that was gentle and caring with the woman who was, had a reputation throughout town, who was looked down upon by the religious leaders, and he cared for her and called her righteous. It's very fitting that that same Christ would give his last sermon about the kingdom of God to these daughters of Jerusalem. And in this moment and in this sermon, we see the fullness of the passion of Christ on display. Because you see, as Jesus is walking towards the cross, his feet are fixed on God's plan. And his eyes are constantly fixed on the kingdom. And all while this is happening, his heart is fixed on the people. And so we see that this is what's driving Christ to do the will of God to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth and to mend the hearts of broken people and to bring them to where he is. 
And as we see Jesus use some of his last precious breath to teach about the coming kingdom of God, I believe it's very important that we hold fast to that kingdom language. Because as times go by, and as people change, and as generations change, language changes. And we begin to use different things to describe ourselves, even as Christians. And we'll use different words to describe our spiritual experiences with God and what we're doing and what it means to be a Christian. But through his entire ministry, Jesus is constantly calling us to recognize the importance and the centrality of the kingdom of God. And so we should cling tight to that language and find our identity as kingdom people affirmed through this message of Christ. That Jesus is going to the cross to not just save us into a personal relationship, but to make us sons and daughters of God and members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so in the same way as we see Jesus go into the cross and it causes all of the emotions to well up inside of us, we should also hear those words. To not weep for Christ, but to recognize our need for repentance and to follow in to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus continues down the road. But before he does that, I think it's important for us to get ourselves in the right state of mind to go into what comes next. And so I want you to take 15 or 30 seconds here, and I want you to just think about something that really sets you off. Something that angers you, whether rationally or irrationally. Something that gets under your skin. Something that causes you to be frustrated. Let's just take a moment. Everybody got it? You know your thing now? Now, it's possible that some of you, when I said, think about the thing that sets you off, 450,000 things rattled through your mind. You're like, check, 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 check. And it, you instantly got mad because you're just thinking about things that happened and, and the last time it happened to you and the people that are happening. Or maybe it's happened to you six times this morning. Maybe you had to take the full 15 seconds, and maybe you're a little bit of a more even-tempered person than, we'll say, myself. And it took you a little longer to find those things. But the reality is all of us have things that drive us crazy. All of us have things that get on our nerves. All of us have things that cause us anger. All of us have things that cause us to reach our breaking point. And even though I can get frustrated easily sometimes, and I can have a temper depending on what's going on, I can see how Jesus could deal with a lot of these things. He's Jesus after all. And so the man who says to be a peacemaker obviously would be good at being a peacemaker. And so I can understand how Jesus could deal with his disciples arguing while they're sitting at this table and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God and sharing with them salvation itself and they're arguing over who's going to be the best. I understand how he could still deal with them gently. I understand how he could deal with the crowds and the false accusations because he knew this is what he came to do. I could even understand how he can cope with the betrayal of Judas and how all of his disciples turned and ran away except for one. And while Peter, the one who seemingly throughout his entire ministry was the one with the most boldness and the most faith and the most willingness to step out and do things recklessly for the gospel, now is running away and denying ever knowing Christ. I could understand how Jesus could deal with all of that. But now, with what's happening all around Jesus, how is he able to keep his composure? 
says that they're gathered around him with criminals on each side. And people are watching him as he's humiliated on a cross. People are mocking him and laughing at him. They're mockingly calling him the king of the Jews because they can't possibly believe that a king would allow himself to be in such a state. The religious leaders feel vindicated. (laughs) He was this guy who said he was saving the world, forgiving sins and doing all this stuff. He can't even save himself. And in the midst of unspeakable pain, and heartbreak, and humiliation, and brokenness, and spiritual oppression, as all of that is going on, not only is Jesus not screaming out in anger or in sorrow, but what he actually says is unfathomable as he looks at these crowds and he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Even on the cross, even in the midst of all of that, Jesus is still forgiving. Remember the time when Jesus healed a paralyzed man. Jesus told him his sins were forgiven and they accused him of blasphemy. And the question Jesus asked was, which is more impossible? Which is harder to do? To offer forgiveness of sin or to tell this man to get up and walk. And he told the man to get up and walk and he left. But now those words ring very differently in my ears because as Jesus is offering this kind of forgiveness, I do think that it has to be harder for the God of the universe to offer this unconditional forgiveness to the people who would betray him and turn him over to be crucified and reject him than it would to simply take himself off of the cross but he's still forgiving. In the life of a Christian, the balance between guilt and grace is a very difficult thing. Because we believe, and we know, because what Scripture teaches us, that salvation is by grace alone. That it is a gift, that it's not something that you earn, that it's not something that even if you tried all the days of your life, you could not do enough good things to earn God's favor. And so he gives that to us free of charge through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And while maybe we believe that in our minds and even in our hearts, we still have to look in the mirror. And so many times we can see the same face that we've seen our entire life. We know the things that we do. We know the things that we say. We know the things that we think. We know who we are in public, and we know who we are behind closed doors. We know ourselves deeply and intimately for all of the flaws and all of the brokenness and all the weaknesses, and we know that God knows us even more deeply. And so it's easy to look in the mirror and say, I know that Scripture teaches me that salvation is by grace alone, but I also know who I am, and there is no way that God could possibly forgive somebody like me. if he can forgive the men who spit in his face and mocked him as a false king, if he can forgive the religious leaders who stood in opposition to him every single moment of his life and who looked at him as a blasphemer and someone who deserved to die, 
If he can forgive his disciples who walked with him through his entire ministry and then ran into the streets and hid, if he can forgive all of these things, then trust me, my friends, he can forgive us as well. See, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. This perfect man, our great high priest. And as he did, as he was humiliated and broken for us, not only was he doing that on our behalf, but then he cries out in intercession on behalf of the ones who rejected him. And scripture teaches us that for anyone who puts their faith in Christ, Jesus does this every single day for us. Every time we fall short. Every time we mess up, every time we sin, every time we do things that displease the heart of God, as our lives scream out unworthy, Jesus pleads his blood on our behalf, and he says, no, they don't have what it takes, but I do, and they belong to me, and so, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. In the book of Hebrews, The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says we don't have to be held back by guilt and shame because Jesus, for the joy of what laid before him, for the joy of calling us his friends and members of his kingdom and sons and daughters of God, he was willing to endure the shame of the cross on our behalf so that we can cling to that faith and run with endurance, not being hindered by our brokenness and weakness, but being propelled by the grace and mercy of God. Again in Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 11 through 14, he says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, though the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands that is of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer of Hebrews here says, because of the work of Christ on the cross, you have a clean conscience. You've been made new from the inside out, and this sacrifice was given once and for all. And so when Jesus offers that forgiveness, he cleanses us past, present, and future, and he gives us an eternal redemption that will never pass away. In Romans, Paul says in chapter 5, we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. He continues on in verse 9 after saying that Christ has died for us at our most ungodly, saying, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then in Ephesians, Chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, Paul says again here that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This was the plan that Christ would suffer and die and endure the shame of the cross so that we no longer had to bear the shame of our sin. And our response to that should be to recognize this incredible forgiveness that he offers, that this is our king and the kind of unconditional, unlimited freedom he gives and forgiveness that he gives to anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. And so if you are here and you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, then we need to live like people who have been forgiven, running our race with endurance, not being bogged down and weighed down by our sins, but using our forgiveness and using our clean conscience to live lives that honor and glorify God. And in those times when we don't, when we trip and when we fall and when we mess up, falling into the grace of God, allowing him to pick us up, clean us up, and continue moving in the same direction. And we also need to be people who forgive. Because to, much, to those who have been given much, much is required. And we have been given much when it comes to forgiveness. God has lavished his grace on us. And so we have to do the same for others. Not only living as people who have been forgiven, but living as people who are defined by forgiveness and offering that same forgiveness to those who trespass against us. Because as Jesus was at his lowest and most broken, he was still forgiving. And then, with all of this chaos and everything going on and this big wide picture of everything taking place, Luke zooms in and gives us a picture of Jesus in the midst of a conversation with maybe the only two people on the planet at that moment who could at least somewhat empathize with what Jesus was going through, at least on a physical plane. And it begins with one criminal yelling at Jesus echoing the same noise as all the other people. And he feels like he's probably got a golden opportunity here because he's probably heard the stories about Jesus who healed the sick and raised the dead to life and who multiplied meals so that thousands of people could eat and he met with people where they were. And so this criminal probably thought, here's my opportunity. He's going to get us down. He's going to set us free and I'm going to be okay. And when it didn't happen, he became filled with rage and he looked at Jesus and he says, you should be saving us. If you have this incredible power that you really claim to have, then you should get yourself off. And while you're at it, why don't you take us with you? And then the other criminal chimes in. And I I love how he begins this sentence. 
because he says to him, do you not fear God? This man who has nothing, certainly no knowledge, probably didn't walk with Jesus, someone who lived a life of crime and now his crimes are warranting his death, he looks and he sees in Christ the image of God. And he says, do you not fear God? Because you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And then in verse 41, he says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus, and all he asks is that Jesus would remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus responds, and he says, I'll do you one better. I'm not going to need to remember you, because on this day, you will be with me in paradise. I've been asked a lot of times about deathbed conversions. And of course, in every individual case, in every individual life, salvation is something that is in the hands of God. And so we can't make broad statements. But when I'm asked about that, my mind immediately goes to this story. Because here you have this man who is on the cross. A criminal who is rightly understanding that this is what he deserves. He says, this is the exact reward that I have earned for my entire life. I deserve death. And he is a man who has no second chance. He's not going to be able to say a prayer or ask Jesus to remember him in his kingdom and say, okay, now I'm going to go and try to live a good life so that you can somehow justify giving me this salvation. He's not asking Jesus for a second chance because he doesn't have a second chance. This man is going to die. You didn't come down from a Roman cross. And so he wasn't going to have a chance to be a good church member. He wasn't going to have a chance to go and make amends for all the wrongs that he had done. He wasn't going to have a chance to get his life cleaned up. The only thing that he had the ability to do was cry out to mercy to the only one in the universe who had the power to give it to him. And he received it. Not because of what he had done, Not because of what he had said, but because of the one that he said it to. And what's so amazing is in this incredible book that we have, filled with men and women who loved God and served God. In Hebrews 11, that passage right before the passage we read earlier, Hebrews 11 tells us stories of these men and women who lived their lives for God and died not yet receiving that promise. They were looking for Christ, but they died before his time had come, and they were longing and waiting for Jesus. And now the very first person who was saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross was a criminal condemned to death. And if Jesus can save this criminal, if Jesus can forgive those crowds, he can do the same for each and every one of us. And this criminal reminds us that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. That Christ is enough. 
You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't have to fix all of your problems to come to Jesus. In fact, the way that he tells us to come is just like this thief on the cross who just humbled himself and says, I deserve everything I am getting, but God, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's our calling as well. To say, Jesus, I have nothing to offer. Jesus, there is nothing I can do to repay you for everything that I've done, but all I'm asking is that you forgive me and that you remember me. And the Bible teaches us that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're here and you've never put your, Christ, your faith in Christ before, if you've never gone through the waters of baptism, then the plea is the same today as it is every single Sunday. Please do not leave this room without talking with me or one of our elders or our small group leaders about what it means to trust in Jesus for salvation and to go through baptism. We're going to have baptisms on December 30th, so it's already set up. So just come on. And if you're here, and if you are a follower of Christ, you are blessed enough to not have to make a deathbed conversion. Because too often we can think of that as an easy way out. You get to live however you want and then just make this last dying prayer to God and then somehow get in the kingdom. That's not fair. But it is not a burden to live a life for Christ. It's not a burden to live a life following Jesus, but it is a privilege and a gift. And so if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then each and every day is an opportunity to live the life that that criminal, I assure you, would have longed to be able to live. He would have longed to be able to come off of that cross and spend every day following after Jesus and doing the work that he had called him to do. And we get that opportunity and we should not take one moment for granted. But look at every single breath that we take as an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus. Every single movement that we have is an opportunity to move in God's grace and love and serve the way that God has called us to love and to serve. To be ambassadors of the king who is still saving. And then after all this happens, we see this amazing scene where the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that there was now no barrier between God and his people, but we could come freely into his presence through Christ. And then Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then once he says that, he exhales and he breathes his last. And all of the chaos, all of the voices, all of the mocking, all of the things that happened came to a halt. One of the soldiers recognizes the power of God and the innocence of Christ. And Luke says that all the crowd that came to watch this spectacle left beating their chests in sorrow because they had recognized the full weight of what Jesus had to do. In any case, silence after chaos is shocking. And it can be alarming, and it can be difficult to wrestle with. And so we are people who are naturally inclined to fill the silence with noise and distract ourselves from the things that make us uncomfortable or the things that cause us to feel. But here we have the same God who in Genesis chapter 1 
entered into his rest on the seventh day of the week. Now, on this fifth day of the week, is entering into the coldness of the grave. And as Jesus was teaching all through the book of Luke, now we experience the silence of God. In our Good Friday services every year, there's always a call to reflect on the silence of the empty cross in the full grave. To think about all the feelings that must have taken place for the disciples and the women that followed after Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing this week. Because yes, we do look at this in hindsight. In our last sermon in the book of Luke that we've gone through most of this entire year, we're going to look at what Christ did after the resurrection and see that because of what happened on that first day of the new week, that we have a calling and a mission and a purpose to go out and to live and to love and to serve. But Sunday would not be possible without Friday. And our calling to be ambassadors of Christ and workers of the kingdom of God could never have happened if Jesus did not first go in to that darkest of places. If Jesus would not have entered death on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and made new. And so I want to encourage you this week, in the midst of the Advent season, to sit in the silence of the grave. To hear the echoes of Christ's last words calling the daughters of Jerusalem not to weep, interceding to God to forgive broken and flawed people, welcoming a sinner and a criminal into his kingdom to allow those words to wash over you and restore your faith and restore you to the joy of your salvation and sit in and bask in the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of God and the salvation of God that allows us to live our calling after the resurrection. And so let's do that this week. And then come prepared to worship our risen Savior again next week as we receive our marching orders as members of the kingdom.